take first watch. Hello, welcome to an all new Motherlobe episode of the First Watch Podcast. I'm Zach, and I'm here with Cole. How are you? I'm good. How about you? I'm doing great. Got a big smorgasbord of new movies to talk about, like a big old pasta dish with Evil Dead Rise as the meatball at its center. Uh, but before we dig in, I was curious if you've been munching on anything good lately. Uh, yeah, I have been. Um, well, good is a bit of a stretch, but you know. <laughs> It is what it is. So I have seen two new releases that have a lot to do with my uh, ancestry, if you want to call it that. (laughs) (laughs) The first of which is Mafia Mama, directed by Catherine Hardwick of Twilight and... I uh, didn't know that she directed this. Yeah, of Twilight, Miss Bala, Red Riding Hood, and the Nativity Story fame. Yes, Nativity Story, throwing it back to Jesus. (laughs) We're keeping that streak alive. I don't know if Jesus would approve of this movie, frankly, <laughs> but you know, this movie is about a suburban American mom named Kristen, played by Tony Collette. Her son leaves for college. She finds out that her good for nothing husband is cheating on her. But most importantly, she discovers that her grandfather has passed away. And as well, he summons her to come back to Italy for the funeral, where she finds out that not only was he the dawn of La Familia, his last wish is for her to take over as the head of the family. <laughs> Uh, it's like a reverse godfather michael i want this life for you in this case the consigliere is monica bellucci okay great it is a one star movie and a five star movie at the same time (laughs) does tony collette do any like accent work is she playing it (laughs) she is like the ultimate like suburban middle class american just thrown into the wacky italian stereotype hour (laughs) she's doing some great physical comedy one thing that really threw me for a loop is that the trailers really undersell how bloody this is. That's a big theme for today. There's an extended sequence where a hitman gets taken out with a high heel and she stabs him multiple times, not only, you know, down there, but also <laughs> in his eye. And, you know, I'm surrounded by like a bunch of middle aged women. And I'm like, okay, that's what we're here for. It's a bizarre, insane little movie. Like, there's some edits that make no sense. Uh, Monica Bellucci has a fake bionic leg that she uses to deflect bullets okay. off of. Yeah, watch that one, Wine Drunk. <laughs> yeah. That's what I would say for that one. The other Italian or Italian movie that I saw Endless Soup, Salad, and Breadsticks at the Olive Garden Italian. Check uh, <laughs> uh, Gazzo. Uh, the other one is The Pope's Exorcist. Speaking of accent work. <laughs> I don't know what Russell Crowe was doing. I was living for it. He makes this movie for me. <laughs> I mean, he really does. This is directed by Julius Avery, who directed Overlord from a couple of years back. This follows Father Gabriel Amort, chief exorcist of the Vatican, and his battle at a condemned abbey in Spain with one of the most powerful demons from hell, voiced by Ralph Innocent. Which, you know, if you need someone to voice a demon, that's a A-plus pick. Yeah, there's that trailer moment where Ralph Innocent from the voice of a little Spanish boy is like, bring me the priest. <laughs> that was kind of what sold me on going to see the film. Yeah, it's a very, very standard horror film. Yeah, exorcism movies, I mean, like all the way back to Friedkin, 
just not really my bag. Mm -hmm. They don't really do it for me. I love movies about faith, and I particularly think there's a certain camp readiness to a lot of the Catholic imagery, particularly. But yeah, they just get really tropey and mm-hmm. kind of mired in like trying to take these characters too seriously. When what really works about this is Russell Crowe scootering around on his little Vespa, drinking whiskey everywhere near the very end of it. It almost kind of like salvages it because you got like the Virgin Mary and the Lake of Fire, but it's only like ten minutes of it. Like, yeah. I just need more of that kind of comic book hell. The set design was fantastic like the catacombs underneath the abbey. I did like watching Crow act like a cartoon character around that Spanish priest. Kind of uneasy for me that this is like based on a real guy who apparently wrote a bunch of books and yeah. is kind of a charlatan. <laughs> Which I don't really mind that it's he's more of a fantasy figure yeah. here, but I feel like this would piss off the Catholic Church, but it still feels too deferential to Catholics for me, for my taste. Yeah. Feels like as long as we're going in this pulp direction, just like Take it further, push it yeah, more. I wish it leaned further in that direction because, like you said, there's an inherent camp to everything the Catholic Church does. I mean, have you seen the Pope's wardrobe? <laughs> big old hat, big old stick. The Pope here is played by none other than Django himself, Franco Nero. <laughs> Not getting enough screen time for me. In Honestly, my personal he needed more. <laughs> uh, who did you invite? Uh, oh, that's my friend Luke. He's bringing over a pigeon. I think All right, said. odd animal to bring. Let's uh see what's up. Hello. Hey, Luke. Hi. How's it going? How's the bird? Yeah, I got it right here off camera. You can totally see it. (laughs) How are you? Doing pretty well for myself, all things considered. I am in a position where I'm about like two weeks away from graduating the college. Oh, congrats. Very, very nice. Congratulations to you. Thank you. Besides that, nothing else really. For the first time joining us on the First Watch Podcast, this is our friend Luke, who I've previously discussed on Jams and Tea. We had a great conversation back. Wow, it's been over a year now. So great to have you on. Great to talk to you here for the first time. We were just discussing some of our favorite Italian films of the year, including Mafia Mama and The Pope's Exorcist. And I was about to bring up the Super Mario Brothers movie, (laughs) which I know that you saw. I did. I did, in fact. Oh, man. There has been a great year for Italy. Man, who would have thought? My Journey to Italy, directed by Martin Scorsese. Yes, I have seen the Mario movie. I'm assuming most of the people that are listening to the podcast have probably seen the Mario movie or at least know about it. And I only had one thing that I really wanted from it because my expectations were more or less whatever. And it was for the Jack Black musical number to be good. Listen, I may have just been thinking about what I wanted (laughs) wrong, but I was kind of hoping more for like tenacious d master exploder type song where he's just <laughs> talking about how he's gonna fucking destroy mario so i was gravely disappointed that they went with the safe choice the mario movie did in my opinion have some extremely memorable music choices i just watched this yesterday i had no real intention of catching up with it except like a group of people that i'm in a discord server with were streaming it hmm. so i just sat in with them and watched it the music ranges from a really good score that interpolates Koji Kondo's Super Mario Brothers scores, a little bit of David Wise's Donkey Kong music, into this like cool, sweeping animated movie score. And then it's side by side with a bunch of like the tritest fucking needle drops oh. that you can possibly imagine. Yeah. Oh. From No Sleep to Brooklyn to <laughs> Holding Out for a Hero to Take on Me by Aha. It's like Suicide Squad level needle drop choices. I've been thinking about this movie in terms of that sonic redesign, how 
you know, just like back in the day, we had like Fantastic Four movie where Galactus would be like a cloud of amorphous bullshit. And now it's like Lego Batman, where every little stupid detail of it is like comic accurate or whatever the fuck. And that's exactly how this movie is. It looks like you're watching a hodgepodge of a bunch of games put together by people who copiously studied Wikipedia. And it's just got like the inescapable feeling of a Funko Pop idol figure yeah just like plastic no edges on it making a lot of money right now but it's going to be in a landfill in three weeks feels very disposable as like set up for making more things later on down the road and the only thing i can describe it as it feels like a very expensive fan animation in the sense of yes is very dense in its like references and connections but thematically is about as deep as a fucking baby pool (laughs) as the little instruction booklet you get at the case of a video game exactly yeah you know i think a fan version of this would have more passion i think a lot of this celebrity voice cast is just like lazy as hell yeah chris pratt seth rogan anya taylor joy fred armison other than jack black who i think puts a little bit of pepper into it yeah. And even Jack Black's kind of like, I said that to you, Cole, and you were like, even that seems kind of lazy. <laughs> it just seems like the most obvious choice to take. Yeah. yeah. It also has the weird thing of like a very obvious pitch thing going on with his voice, especially in like the song. I was like, ooh, I'm hearing that digitization over the voice. And it's like, at that point, why not just, you know, get someone with like a really, really deep voice? I mean, I love Jack Black, but also I'd rather have someone that sounds right for the part specifically than just, I like that guy. Yeah. yeah. When Donkey Kong did the <laughs> Seth Rogen laugh and they animated it, I was like, okay, <laughs> I gotta get the fuck out of here. <laughs> there were like certain Mario Kart segments that I thought were cool and they mostly just made me want to play Mario Kart. But... Yeah. That section was cool for about the first two minutes and then it was like, oh yeah, they don't have an understanding of space within an action sequence <laughs> or framing. That was cool until you made it not cool. Thank yeah. you, Illumination <laughs> Studios. Their strongest film to date, maybe. Yeah, yeah, actually. It's that Despicable Me, or I know Cole will jump to the defense, the quote, very heavy air quotes. Defense is a strong word. (laughs) More like a lukewarm defense. (laughs) Of the Grinch one. Ah, at least Grinch has Brockhampton as a needle drop. God. (laughs) But that's not saying much, though. These are like all different options of which knife would hurt the least if I just stab my stomach. Which bone would you like to be broken the most? Yeah, and like obviously we were talking about the Jack Black one, but this doesn't even have like your happy or any of the songs that are in the other Illumination movies, and it just leads to it feeling more like reheated leftovers, which is incredible because it's probably going to be the highest grossing film of the year. <laughs> Anything that you've seen lately that you've preferred to Mario, maybe? Um, so in terms of like newer stuff, not really much, mainly because it's all going to be covered in this uh, podcast in some way, shape, or form. <laughs> As I said earlier, we have a big menu today. I've been watching stuff from both film and TV. I'll make a quick round of what I've got in terms of film. Mostly older stuff. Um, One that I've really, really enjoyed was the 1953 film The Hitchhiker. Ah, out of libido. Very tight 70 minute thriller that I would highly recommend. It also, when I thought about it more, is a very good double feature with Old Joy, weirdly enough. Yeah. Hmm. There's like heavy subtext. And they're like, we're going on a fishing trip together. Just two guys <laughs> going into the woods together without their wives. Without our wives. <laughs> it's just us, two guys. 
And also the whole element of violent machismo strung through the whole thing. And also just weirdly specific stuff like being 70 minutes long. Yeah, really minimal resources. You can tell that production is just those few people, the car, the woods. I really love the desolateness of that interior car and the nighttime stuff is like really, really nice. It's nothing massive in terms of its character development, but it's for as short as it is, it still maintains its tension so perfectly. Another film that I watched that's very old actually was Terje Vigin, but is translated as A Man There Was, which was a film from 1917. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the Victor... Shush. Ah, Mr. Phantom Carriage. Yes, Mm -hmm. the Phantom Carriage man himself, who also stars as the main character in the film. Uh, And Wild Strawberries, too. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wild Strawberries as well, which learning more about him is like, oh, I wonder if there's some intention in that. But I really love this. This is honestly my favorite thing I've seen so far this month. Which was kind of a surprise because I have struggled with silent films that are like pre-1920s because I feel like 20s was when they started figuring out things like really interesting framing and stuff like montage was kind of happening that time. So like just more me being like, I want visual language, bland, I'm a baby. (laughs) But this was the first instance, I think, where I genuinely just completely loved from this specific era because I think even for the era like it utilizes very specific framing and shadows and genuine drama to such a great effect Mm -hmm. i'd say like my one thing that i have issue with it though is that it has a lot of inner titles that are just saying exactly what it was showing on screen and i was like yes i know he is sad for his family (laughs) we don't have to reiterate this but also i do have to remember it's 1917 so who knows the audience sensibility yeah Yeah, regardless of that because i feel like that's something i can kind of gloss over pretty easily this one genuinely has such like a good just drama to it and a basic concept of like this man coming across someone who basically committed a massive injustice against him several years ago and has the chance to either let him die or help him there's a lot of stuff maybe from like this era that has that kind of grand operatic drama to it but this is the first one i think where i felt it more deeply it's like 56 minutes long it's not like you know fucking dr mabuse the gambler where it's like oh man <laughs> four hours of <laughs> fritz lang cook it you gotta watch a mini series basically <laughs> that's silent yeah all those old serials that cole's got on his watch list right now yeah can't wait <laughs> did you ever catch up with the second half of the nibble oh i still need to sometime i need to do that too now what's funny is part one is on that overall list but part two is not weird Maybe they only voted for, like, you know, people were writing the whole thing on the ballot. Maybe. Or maybe it was just one person out of the 1,600 voters who was like, okay, only part one. I don't like part two. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck part two. not my bag. It's like Kill Bill of the 1920s. Uh Oh. (laughs) So my background with Kelly Reichardt's films has been going on for a good long time because I saw, I think it was Certain Women was my first, and I didn't think too much of it and saw a bunch of other films and then felt more or less the same about them. So it was kind of a slow process of really appreciating her work. And Old Joy, at this point in time, is like one of my top five favorite films. I very much love that film on a very, very deep personal level. And much of her other work has kind of also risen in a similar extent in my eyes. Like, I can't think of a film from her. There is no film that I would consider even just like, it's good, it's fine. 
like everything has been you know nothing but straight bangers and it's probably one of the few directors that i've actively like written about academically honestly <laughs> which you know if i'm willing to do that that's a good sign of the director's work in my eyes so going into showing up i knew what to expect knowing that this was more oriented to kind of like a slice of life comedy something kind of outside of that range and i think seeing the film i still am like developing my thoughts on it because i'm like oh man this really is a bit different but still the same in strange ways you've got your knockout lead performer for a kelly reichardt film michelle williams of course playing a character that's kind of you could debate a director surrogate character but like i think if you are a person who is trying to make art in any semblance you kind of see something in this character you have some other supporting casts that are really interesting, like another reoccurring actor, John Magro, playing mm -hmm. Michelle Williams' character's brother, who is a bit of a recluse, possibly paranoid. It's not really fully stated what his deal is, but it's definitely something. Major Kanye vibes going on over there. <laughs> Digging holes in the backyard. It's a major piece. Very major. <laughs> Got a little bit of a Fableman's reunion, Judd Hirsch playing the father. Yeah, Judd Hirsch playing a wonderful, clueless father character who's in retirement. Then you also have Hong Chow playing her friend and also landlord, who's also an artist, who cannot be bothered to help fix the heated water, which is kind of a major plot point in the film. Andre 3000 yes. is also there, which is so weird to me because literally until like about the time the other film that he was in made by claire denis i can't remember high life i was gonna say half-life at first but I was like, that's not right. i've got gamer brain right now <laughs> a brief little tangent about andre 3000 my only knowledge about him was because of a tv show that he did back in the early 2000s called class of 3000 <laughs> and so when people are like andre 3000 is in a claire denis and kelly reichardt film is like you mean the guy from class from 3000 <laughs> That's awesome. Why though? Got a Bombach appearance there. That too. Middle. Just did White Noise last year. Yeah. So he's kind of making a little bit of a tour of indie darling yeah, I tours. love that for him. Yeah. Still doesn't top the class of 3000 though. <laughs> I've already alluded to it a couple times just in joking, but this kind of has a Lewin Davis quality to me. So it focuses on Michelle Williams, who is an employee at an art school. She works for her mom. And it's this community of teachers and students and artists. And it's a little plotless, but it has this Lewin Davis-esque element. So when the Coen brothers wrote that movie, they wrote a cat into the script. And they basically said that they did that because otherwise <laughs> there was no conflict or plot. It was just this guy going around <laughs> being sad in Greenwich Village. And here, that is represented by a pigeon that gets into the Williams character's house and is attacked by her cat. Cole, what did you... You brought this up a few episodes back, and we put it off because I really wanted to see it and talk about it. So you haven't really had a chance to fully get your thoughts out. Yeah, I had to marinate in my West Coast privilege for a couple of weeks there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they pushed it back on me a week. I was supposed <laughs> to see it, and then I got all the way to the theater, and they're like, actually, this oh, is not right. <laughs> I really love Reichardt's work, and I was excited for this. It was kind of a full circle moment, too, because First Cow was the last movie I saw in theaters before everything shut down at the start of the pandemic. It was literally like the opening weekend in LA, and then boom, that was it. I'm very jealous. I wish I could have seen First Cow in a theater. That movie's so good. Such a great experience. But yeah, I really did love this a lot. I found it to be hilarious. 
smart, moving, just quiet little slice of life, reflecting on all these different personalities buzzing around each other in this art school environment, which I also found relatable because I went to an art school. So I know these types of people very, very well. <laughs> Luke, something that you wrote about that I thought was good was about the demystification mm. of art in this yeah. movie. A lot of movies in the world about art, and they all put it up on a pedestal, but I think this one has a more interesting attitude. I wouldn't call it subversive or confrontational exactly, but just frank, I think. For me, like this film came out at a very specific time for me where I'm kind of realizing, especially within like my own art form that I'm trying to be good at, that it's really nice to see a film that sees it not so much as just, oh, art is about the passion and what's in your heart so much as it is about you have to make time for it and also just living mm. life as a regular person. And it feels very nice to see that it's not so much one or the other. It is probably the most Kelly Reichardt way you could go about making a film about art. You have to do it when you can, but your conflict is lots of little inconveniences that arise from life. And that's just how these things go. Yeah, it's a very honest film about the creative process. We see her taking off a day of work to get her work done creatively, pulling all-nighters, eating barbecue potato <laughs> chips. There's just nothing glamorous. It doesn't look very romantic or fun. It just looks yeah. normal. I had a lot of very strong feelings about the Hong Chao character and their dynamic with each other because i'm of the really implacable opinion that landlords are like ontologically mm -hmm. bad <laughs> it's just not good yeah. like but that's something that i think reflects reichardt's sensibilities so we talked about old joy a couple times i think there's a comparison to be made here between how old joy presents the friendship between those two characters those two men as having faded over time and now they're adults and they feel differently about each other than they used to feel and that's something that's true of the hong chow and michelle williams mm -hmm. characters here who i believe are applied to have been or stated to have been former classmates and now they're adults and so their relationship just changes little frustrations perk up between them and then the wendy and lucy kind of you gotta have a car to get a job and you have to have a job to get a car and you have to have a house yeah. that, you know like life never stops mm -hmm. yeah and i think like another thing you could probably make a comparison especially if old joy is like there's kind of a divide between living a more honest free life or whatever and one person kind of citing more of modern settling down sort of deal because i see sort of hong chow's character as like the friend that you make in college but then you realize later on in life that they're doing super corporate bullshit but are really loving it kind of way and i'm just like oh man i know that i know those people unfortunately but you're also not necessarily just going to completely sever a friendship because they do something you think is kind of dumb or shitty but there's something very real about that relationship even the way they deal with the strains of certain things like the water heater mm. certain little lack of communication where hong chow's character is putting up that tire swing while she's being confronted about the water <laughs> heater and when she looks back michelle williams has just walked away where she's like ah, i'm tired of your shit yeah. right now. <laughs> Those little gestures that build up between friends, like nonverbal yeah. communication. There's a lot of good family dynamic stuff in this for me. Like when they get to her show at the end and all her ceramics are out and we see the mother, the father, the brother, and the sister all crowded around a table of cheese and they're bickering. <laughs> that part hit especially hard for me. I know that feeling of when you're presenting like the big thing you worked on to family members, but they kind of are coming into it without much knowledge. They're like, oh, wow. 
look at all this. <laughs> and so you're just like, I don't know how to present this any other way. But even then, there's still like those moments of like genuine interest and warmth because I love the bit of the lap around the table that Judd Hirsch mm. does like near the end. Yeah, taking it all in. He's also into ceramics. He yes. has like a whole little shed of pottery. So he's got a little bit of skin mm. in the game in that respect. I gotta say, I said this to Cole already. Hot take. I don't like her stuff. <laughs> I, I kind of thought that this movie, in terms of that demystification, it allows you to have a little bit of skepticism mm-hmm. for these people and what they're yeah. doing. Like when you see the people dancing out on the lawn, I kind of had my dad's reaction. I'm like, what are these doing? <laughs> <laughs> Study and movement. What are we talking about? You're dancing on grass. I mean, I didn't like all of her stuff, but I thought some of her stuff was cute. I mean, I would put it on display in my home. I kind of agree with Andre that the one that gets a little bit charred is probably the most interesting looking piece. Oh, yeah. Although she does say that that's her favorite too before that yeah that yeah i agree i love that bit though because i feel like it's very emblematic of you want to make something perfect but it's never going to be perfect and you're just going to be mad that it's not perfect but the fact that it isn't is actually kind of why it is perfect what is making good art in the first place and that's this interesting new layer to the piece yeah exactly we touched a little bit on the pigeon aspect of it but i feel like the bird is kind of like the heart of the film yeah. in many ways it's the bird and the cat yeah it's always animals with kelly reichardt <laughs> cows dogs Birds, cats like i said i had such a strong reaction to their dynamic that it was like hey can you watch my bird wait no nope reasons zach would make a bad movie character number one if my landlord told me to watch their pigeon i would just say no so i would never undergo the character development of like learning to care for the pigeon i just would be like nah i got cats i'm not no nope moments of self-awareness of not becoming a good film character is always always fun because i don't know how i'd react but i'd probably be like uh i guess so who did you invite now uh, that's actually Jake. He texted me earlier. He said that he was like looking through some runes or some shit. Hey, Jake, what's up, man? Oh, you know, just chilling with my uh, own personal copy of the Necronomico. I haven't dusted off the last letter yet, but, uh, you know. <laughs> you sat on anybody cute lately? Uh, you know, I... I... <laughs> We have just been discussing some of the films that we've been watching. you catch up with anything good lately? In order to prepare accordingly for a new summer of spooky, which is apparently happening because when I went to go see a certain film, we got previews for the new Insidious movie and like a new Stephen King joint. Feels like I'm right back I was 10 years ago in a new summer of horror. I've been watching a little bit of horror stuff this week, starting off with um, not the greatest pick in the world which is the remake of the thing well not a remake (laughs) you know how it is it's Uh, a remake Uh, technically it is a prequel to john carpenter's original film the 2011 version directed by some fucking dutch guy (laughs) whose name i'm not even gonna try to pronounce who's never made a movie since uh, so that's a great really? sign. I wonder why. <laughs> it's exactly the career that the kind of person who would make the thing prequel probably kind of deserves a little bit. It's it it sucked. I, I was kind <laughs> of blown away by just how terribly the CG in this has aged. Was this your first time? Yeah, first time in full. I had seen it at a friend's house a while ago at a party or something, and I just remember being like, wow. The monster in this looks like garbage. What a mood killer for our party. And then when watching 
this movie, I thought, wow, the monster looks like garbage. <laughs> they turn the thing, this amorphous Lovecraftian being into this bipedal CG monstrosity that looks like it's made with the texture of Play-Doh in the second half of this, which is terrible. Mary Elizabeth Winstead is in this movie, oh. and God bless her. She tries, oh, yeah. but she's working with a cast of the most boring men imaginable, and also <laughs> Joel Edgerton before Joel Edgerton was like a thing. Let me tell you something. This may be useless movie ever made because have you seen the john carpenter original film well congratulations <laughs> you've also seen this film because despite the fact that it distinguishes itself and says no we're not going to be a remake we're going to be a prequel it's the same movie the same things happen shouts to rob zombie <laughs> you know that's the thing it made me really appreciate a certain sequel in a certain horror franchise that i saw this week that took a deliberate attempt to go and change the location up a little bit so it made me a little more appreciative of very very simple things which is why i also kind of doubled that with another very simple horror movie that was thankfully a whole lot better by the name of His House, which uh, came out yeah. in 2020 That's a good from a director named Remy Weeks, British director and screenwriter. And this, I believe, is his feature film debut. And this movie was really interesting. It's a domestic horror movie that is about a couple escaping from war-torn South Sudan. And they escape and they come to London. And a very bizarre Matt Smith cameo happens as he's the agent that's like escorting them there and it's a very politically charged movie about the state of the refugee crisis and how unfriendly it is to these people and the horror movie is nestled into that the sort of domesticity of where they move into and the potential lingering ghosts of the past but it may not be connected to the apartment that they move into it might be something that's from where they came from but it's a bit ambiguous as to what's going on there and i found Basically, everything about this really compelling except for the horror. The horror is a bit standard, very much an amateur effort. The editing is pretty strong, but I can't say that I was particularly moved by any of it. That said, everything around it, the drama between the couple, the actual, like, the playing out of the story is really interesting. It's a really unique perspective, and there are lots of really creative ideas, and you get a real sense of claustrophobia that this couple goes through. They show up to this place, and they basically tell them, like, within gunpoint of just, like, you can't step out of line, you can't do this, you can only go out this many times a week, you can only go for groceries, don't socialize with people, don't do this, don't do that, and it's just like, <laughs> God, this shit sucks, man! <laughs> like, every great horror movie with a central metaphor baked into it it makes something tangible the real scary external force that's plaguing people just as much as it does the monster of the film i can't give it a full ringing endorsement but it's a very unique movie that i would highly recommend it's on netflix right now at least in america so go check that out and thankfully i got the chance to haul ass to theaters finally this year and see some stuff like the latest film from Japan's own Makoto Shinkai, the supposed second coming of Hayao Miyazaki, according to every publicist who ever writes about Makoto Shinkai ever. Liars. As a fan of both, yes. Suzume illustrates that there is one particularly strong Hayao Miyazaki parallel, and it's to Howl's Moving Castle. 
And I think you could make parallels between Howl's and like everything Shinkai's ever made, which yeah. is like overstuffed themes all over the place, messy as fuck, hard hitting emotionally, look and sound. Gorgeous. Pretty boy with long hair. Yeah, <laughs> the love interest in Suzume is particularly like that. Is that's how? Yeah, that's what I was <laughs> yeah. thinking of the minute I saw him. Hmm, wonder what that's supposed to be. Hey, originality has never been Shinkai's strong suit, but that is never something I have taken full marks against him for. Just because when you have the audacity to do something like he did with his American breakthrough film, Your Name, where he essentially combines a cute little body swap rom-com with Donnie Darko, that's <laughs> a way into my heart. This man has a very particular set of skills and themes and ideas that he wants to explore in his work. And God help me, I am a sucker for this man's <laughs> brand of anime melodrama. Specifically in Suzume, which follows up his last film, Weathering With You, which I also caught in theaters and very much enjoyed. That was like the very last thing I saw before that pandemic shut everything down, was Weathering With You, or really close, I think. Oh God, it might have been the last thing I saw before. It was at least close to being like one of the last things I saw. And a fantastic theater experience to have because Shinkai's movies, more than basically anything else out right now, are an absolute color spectacle, a feast for the eyes and ears, no matter who you are, frankly. And Weathering With You was one such spectacle, though I think I had the same overriding criticism with that movie that I think a lot of people had, which was, boy, howdy, this kind of sure feels familiar, kind of like your name, but with an environmentalist bent that's a bit stronger and also a weird gun control subplot <laughs> that really just... What? Weathering With You is a very messy movie. I enjoy it for its various ways in which it kind of deviates from the formula, but that's the thing, is that I enjoyed it when it deviated from Shinkai's typical formula and enjoyed it in spite of the fact that it was mostly pertaining to that. So I had some trepidation walking into Suzume, wondering, like, is this going to just be essentially the same thing over again? And while I can't necessarily say that it's super different from Shinkai's other stuff, I kind of walked away very pleasantly surprised with how different it was, specifically from stuff like yeah. Your Name. To me, it kind of had a Godzilla Evangelion flavor, which is yeah. strong. It's like a Shinkai take on one of those types of stories. There is it a kaiju battle. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> More cats. Which is just better. <laughs> There's a carried over aspect from Weathering With You of how it's pairing Japanese folklore with environmental themes, and not just environmental themes, but more along the lines of like the degradation of the planet and this looming anxiety that everybody has about the future, but particularly young people might have about the future. And what's interesting in both cases is how optimistic they are, because the whole point is to look at things like the COVID pandemic or global warming or just whatever, and be like, it's going to be fine. We're going to live, and there's going to be a future, and that's what the movie's about. It's also about a living chair that does parkour hilariously. <laughs> I cannot overstate how funny it is. Uh. <laughs> Did you see the little chair running around in chase sequences? It's a girl chasing a cat chasing a chair. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the uh. cutest damn cat 
you've ever seen. <laughs> it's another established sort of bent on Japanese folklore is that cats are often these harbingers of terrible events or just sort of forecasters of doom of some kind. And it kind of plays into that, but also slightly subverts what it's doing. Basically, this, this guardian, this keystone of this particular portal that's going to let through a dark energy that only certain people, one of which being our lead protagonist, Miss Suzume, the titular role, can see. And this person, or cat, I guess, goes on the run and is like, I'm done being the Keystone, so sorry. And then our Howl's Moving Castle guy comes in to be like, I'm somebody who comes from a family of people who are supposed to stop this kind of stuff. So we got to go around and start closing doors and save the world from these big-ass worms that are just going to cause... <laughs> big earthquakes and make things just just a real bad time and like zach said there's a certain poignancy in seeing the main character of this being like i'm the only one who can see this very obvious ecological disaster and everyone is ignoring it ah and it's like yeah that's that that's how it feels to be a young person in the world nowadays <laughs> and as such it just kind of drifts along on this sort of road trip that they go on trying to hunt down the supposed keystone, which to me is the core of why I dug Suzume so much is that there's a part in Weathering With You where the characters kind of get untethered from the core conflict of the movie. They almost escape it. Yeah, exactly. Trying to get away from what is going on in the movie. Yeah, and then they find themselves in that hotel room and it briefly becomes like a Hirokazu Koreeda type of drama. Briefly, I, I was going to say that or Tokyo Godfathers, also the sort of emphasis on the kind of yeah. nighttime city, Japan. It's not as nocturnal, but it's still, it's almost like a vagabond story. And I really liked that part in Weathering With You. And this takes that, stretches it out to a big segment and uses it to explore its characters with a little bit more definition than that movie did. And I ended up latching on to the story and the core conceit of this a lot stronger than I did with the last movie. As someone who is not like super into Shinkai's stuff, I kind of am a bit lukewarm on some elements of it, but it's one of those cases where it's like looking at it, it's like, there's nothing that I can think of when I'm like thinking of like the narrative and the construction or even just like the artistry behind it where it's like anything like super wrong with it. But I find myself in like a perplexing situation of, I feel like I should be feeling more than I am with this. There's a lot of stuff that is just set piece stuff like going on to the next thing and there isn't as much breathing room. I think it gets better near the end, but like I think there's some, some elements of it where I'm kind of more just enjoying the silly antics of the situation. I love the sound design on the chair. I yeah, find that just good. a funny detail and like that whole segment is so nice. I really liked the character of Sarazawa, another guy yeah. shout, who is the mm. roommate of the main love interest who's like just like a college student who likes Japanese oldies. Yeah. He plays the song from Kiki's Delivery Service. <laughs> I noticed that. What's the joke that they make about the cat? There's a Ghibli joke that they make about like, oh, yeah, like, like oh, the heart. Oh, yeah, they said the heart. Like when the song is playing and it's just like, oh, this dude is me. <laughs> There's more than a few nods to the animation canon. Shinkai knows what he's drawing from and maybe a way that feels so forward and to be like, look, guys, I know. 
I get it. <laughs> don't think I don't know. And he's right there carrying it as like the apex of anime right now as Ghibli is finding their footing in this transition phase that they're in. He's made like three of the largest grossing movies in the history of anime. Yeah. <laughs> at the movies. He's like the James Cameron of anime at the moment, I guess. I literally was going to say he's the James Cameron. Wow, that's a much better comparison than Miyazaki, frankly. I see way more similarities between the two. They're just like unflaggingly sentimental. And you know, one thing I really need to shout about Suzume that I didn't in any of the things that I've posted or written about it. A lot of his earlier stuff has J-pop all through it, and yeah. people didn't like that. Suzume doesn't really have the J-pop element to it. I don't really dig that because a lot of times it just clashes and it feels really cloying. There's a moment in Weathering with You where a gun goes off and then it goes to this J-pop needle drop that's like, yep. oh. oh my god, that's corny as fuck. I do remember that. Oh my god. Uh, yeah. <laughs> More tastefully utilized in your name, I feel, but Weathering with You certainly laid that on a bit It's sick. more of a romance story. So it's not trying to like do all these other big themes. It's more just like a J-pop song about how these two characters are falling in love. You're like, okay, this one, Suzume, has like this bustling adventure, soaring music that reminded me of the soundtracks for like Near, Near yeah. Automaton, Near Replicant, mm -hmm. where it's just like heavy orchestral vocals and percussion, and it soundtracks some of the more epic set piece stuff. And it gets, you know, softer and gentler too. It's just a movie that has to, because of its scale and because of the money, it has to be the romance and be the adventure movie and be the coming of age story. But it manages to do all those things pretty well and fit them into a package which I found concise and funny. I think it's probably the funniest movie I've ever seen from him. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I can definitely agree on there, that. There's too. a lot of charm in how I think the comedy like of the characters and the quality of the animation often blends. This was one instance where I was really drawn to how they constantly animate Suzume, who she's not the most depth imbued protagonist of all time, but just I remember so many of her singular facial expressions when she's like super flustered and talking to our lead guy character. This mounting sense of responsibility that's put on her, whether it be more lighthearted in the first half emphasizes her sort of still childishness, but when it's more dire in the second half, the coming of age adulthood part is thrust on to her. She has to be more solid. She's more ridden with anxiety. It's just a great example of not just using very pretty animation, but animation to tell your story, to emphasize your characters, which I think Shinkai has always been great at. There's a few great moments of animation here. Like there'll be these moments where the character will just like end up in the sky in free fall. And it's like just like a roller coaster take your breath away. And then speaking of roller coasters, maybe the image of this movie that sticks with me the most is these doors that she's going around and finding. What they represent are places that have been lost to natural disaster. Mm -hmm. So they've been abandoned. And so it's like memories of these lost places. And there's one particular part where it's an abandoned amusement park and you see it light up and all the people are reacting. And you get these different moments where you have the superimposed memories of people where it's like a family talking about like, oh, I'm so glad that we went on vacation today, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. This movie's like a really big blender of themes, but when it's cooking, it's just like, ah, this really is good. I'm with you, man. I don't love every Shinkai movie. In fact, I only really love maybe like your name, but they've all got a lot of stuff that works for me, like that I just think is interesting and unique, and they all look so goddamn mm. good. They really do. You'll be looking nice.
it sounds like a shallow compliment, but I feel like with the animation, that compliment goes a lot farther than it would in most instances. And I, I know that I'm sitting with three other people that totally agree with me is that like when it comes to film, a visual medium, your aesthetics are your story. You know, Zach, you latched onto that image of the abandoned Ferris wheel and stuff that like lit up. You had to at least at one point have drawn a comparison to Satoshi Kon's Paprika at that point, because I know I absolutely did. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I feel like there's kind of a connectivity there and that this does kind of feel like this is Shinkai's attempt to sort of distill all of his ideas in a blender and just sort of yes. make a, a, a movie mm -hmm. smoothie. And it kind of did that with Weathering yep. With You, but it was kind of awkward and clunky. But there. it's messy as fuck. Yeah. It's got these like big chunks of unblended shit that you're chewing on. It's like, that's yeah, not quite right. Yeah, it's not clean, but it's digestible. You know what's happening when it's hitting yeah. you. And like, even when the third act comes through and you kind of got to get into the minutia of like the mechanics of the spiritual components, which is where I know the first time I saw your name, I was a little bit like, I don't really understand how this works, but like the emotion <laughs> just kind of carried me through it. Yeah. And then on rewatch, I was like, oh, okay, I get this a little bit more now. I feel like that's probably going to be the case with Suzume and that on rewatch, I'll be able to understand the supernatural shenanigans a little bit more as they become a little bit more illuminating just because I'm inherently more interested in what evolves into a really interesting conflict between Suzume and her mother or her adopted mother rather, which is something that mm -hmm. gets a little bit sidelined and then built up to be something a little bit more compelling in the second half, which has a spectacular payoff in the end, in my opinion, anyway. That's a big theme for today. Mothers. Mommies. Mothers. Ah, ah! Who the hell did you invite now? I feel like Jennifer Lawrence and Mother. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't invite anybody. I guess I'll go check and see who it is. It looks like it's Morgan. Morgan? Ooh. Is that you? Open up now. Oh, oh he doesn't look good, guys. Morgan's oh. with the maggots now. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Open up now. <laughs> that's right we did have to shoot him during our george a. romero episode yeah, i remember that right. morgan how are you uh you know it's been a good weekend at the movies it has been a very full weekend we are here with a full roster we have five people here to form the podcast voltron talk <laughs> about some movies so what have you been able to catch up with lately well i've sort of started writing a mini thesis since i'm graduating in like less than two weeks hey, congrats lots lots of work to do in the interim one of which will be a good sized piece on the films in the world of long car y box set mm, nice. the only two of those i hadn't seen were happy together and 2046 ah. one of which was rectified last night when i watched happy together and i just how's the despair <laughs> It's back it's a back bit. A bit. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Dark. That's my old friend. No one understands longing like Wong. He just, he can't portray it any better than he does in the myriad of ways that he does it. In the myriad kinds of loneliness that he explores in the movies that he makes. Because really that feeling contains multitudes and by jove he minds them for all they're worth i really enjoy the sense of alienation that you get in happy together yeah. they're ethnically chinese characters who are in south america and there's mm -hmm. just this immense sense of like displacement i use the word godardian in my letterboxd write-up i think it's the same kind of feeling it's just an ethnic alienation as opposed to more of a social one as you would 
see in you know your breathlesses and that's also in line with the listless nature of the film itself i was reading that chang chen's entire storyline was improvised <laughs> he was pulled in mid shoot because leslie chung had to go on tour so basically wong never really had a finished definitive script so a lot of the time they were just sort of rolling with the punches french new wave style so to speak but this time gay Yay! I think the last time that I wrote about that, I compared it to Hemingway. Yeah. I was reading a Hemingway novel. Because there's just a lot of stuff that suggests a deeper past, more detail than the movie's going to give you. There's all this emotion that they pack into the images that implies history and pain and suffering. Yeah. <laughs> I sort of like, if you want to talk about the new queer cinema of the 90s, I think like Hemingway is a good comparison point for Happy Together. I think maybe Kerouac would be good for Iraqi. Mm, you're going stuff. there. Sort of that road movie vibe. The interesting parallels there is just like, what if great American writers, but gay? <laughs> <laughs> and so we all win. Um, I was supposed to be on for the John Wick episode. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. That, that ended up falling through. I've seen that twice now. God bless. Mm. Tell me what your favorite set piece is from John Wick. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> it's either Arc mm. de Triomphe or Hotline Miami. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it's pretty I much call right there. You say Hotline Miami, John Wick, and I'm just like, oh, dude. Oh, dude. <laughs> You're not ready. It's better than you think it is. It's fucking Gaspar Noe's Enter the Void with guns. Fucking Dragon's Breath shotgun ammo from It's Black so Ops. raw. God. God damn. That's what movies were made for. Tom Cruise, Chris McQuarrie, the gauntlet has been thrown down. So yesterday, just had some time to myself, so I threw a couple movies on, uh, one of which was Happy Together, the other was Michael Clayton. Mm. That was literally one I was scrolling through HBO, and it was like, Mm-hmm. Oh, I've been meaning to watch that one. That's a perfect HBO picture. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Oh, yeah. That movie kicks, man. Mm-hmm. What a screenplay. What an edit. What an ensemble. Mm-hmm. And yet, as I said in my letterbox tried up, what if Mr. Soderbergh? A five-star mm-hmm. film. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think Tony Gilroy does a good job, especially for it being his first feature. God, was it? Damn. It's also a little mm-hmm. unremarkable in that department. Very competent, but nothing particularly exciting going on visually and formally. I don't know that I would call it a screenwriter's film, but it has that screenwriter tendency to really rest on the language, characters, mm-hmm. the structure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, great movie. Definitely worth a watch. As for rewatches, since our problematic king Ari Aster <laughs> has returned to cinemas. <laughs> I decided to throw on Hereditary for the first time since its release year. Complicated relationship with that movie. Jake and I saw it in theaters. It was playing at the theater in our hometown, which frankly was baffling. Um, <laughs> yeah, really. Just a couple of days after I had gotten back from vacation to London and then Germany and like all over the underground in London, there were posters up for that movie. And the tagline was always like, this generation's the exorcist. So I was just so jazzed <laughs> going into that thing. And then it hurt me. <laughs> <laughs> it hurt me very deeply. What if Ellen Burstyn removed her head? <laughs> that was like an immediate five star. Then in the time afterwards, I was like, I actually don't know how I feel about that movie. Watched it again after it was on Amazon Prime. 
I believe. And I was like, you know what? This is too much. I'm okay. I'm good. I don't really get much out of this beyond pain. There are other things that I can watch that have a similar effect on me, but resonate more strongly with me. And so basically I let that lie for about five years. Yeah, five. Yeah, God, it's been five years since that movie came out. I can still remember seeing it opening night. I remember the press screening for that. Bones are turning to dust. Just on the advent of Disappointment Boulevard releasing, I decided to just go ahead and give the old Hereditary another shot. And I've landed basically firmly in the middle of my first two reactions with a new uh, appreciation for just... Because Lars von Trier has completely broken my brain, uh, just how funny that fucking movie is. <laughs> you are speaking to a man who has five-starred the house that Jack built. We watched that, cracked a bottle of wine open. That was a good night. As a double, mm-hmm. anybody remember what we doubled it with? Ari Aster's Midsummer. Oh, oh shit. Right. Yeah. <laughs> look at that. God. That who trash. the hell came up with that idea? Who more like what? And the what is mental fucking illness. That was New Year's Eve. <laughs> yeah, it was New Year's Eve of 2020. <laughs> and it was like all of us just shit posting. It was great. <laughs> COVID pandemic. <laughs> oh, that explains more than anything, actually. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm fully through the looking glass with that one. <laughs> fucking naked ass dude standing in the dark. And then it cuts <laughs> over and Tony Collette jumps from out of the corner. And Alex Wolf is like, ah! <laughs> hysterical mommy's on the ceiling damn bitch you're gonna hurt your head deeply fucked movie you brought up the danish enfant terrible so i'll bring up the austrian one who i rewatched hereditary yeah yeah yeah, Uh oh i got a little bit of a funny games vibe off of it this last time off of hereditary and my comparison is this in funny games the two assailants and the family of people are basically in two separate types of movies a drama and a farce in hereditary This poor family thinks that they're in a chest-clutching Bergman drama about grief, when in reality they're in The Omen. And there's just a cruel, funny fucking disparity between the two of them. It's why that moment of impact just bitch slaps you, because you think that you're in this like austere A24, creepy, supernatural movie, and then all of a sudden it's family drama, and then it bitch slaps you again once it goes back into being a supernatural horror. It's pretty great. (laughs) Really good movie. I've especially seen so much in its vein now that there's just a lot of different voices to that kind of story that I prefer. But yeah, still really strong film, really strong debut, probably my least favorite of his three features. Mm. Actually, definitely my least favorite of his features. Hereditary is my favorite of his films. Spoiler alert, a little bit. (laughs) The least surprising thing anyone has ever heard. I like when he's digging into the supernatural horror, you know, scare the shit out of you. I think he is very effective at doing that. And I think what makes Hereditary really work in comparison to his other two features is that there's a real balance between Colette and Wolf, who are essentially co-leads, and the brain that they have on each other as they lash out. I mean, especially in that scene at the dinner table, which Mm. has been memed to death by influencers and wannabe hipsters and people who buy A24 <laughs> merch like it's a supreme hoodie. But that's a genuinely bone-chilling scene. 
I feel yeah. like that reaction, the memeage, is just a coping mechanism because that is by far the most harrowing part of the uh, film to me now. My colon just shrivels up as soon as Tony Collette just lets out the fucking yeah. bang on the table. Don't you swear at me, you little shit! I want to leave. <laughs> I am going to McDonald's. I will not have dinner here. <laughs> I have a kind of alternate opinion there. To me, what precedes that scene is kind of what feels intense to me, and then that starts to feel like a relief because you're like fuck finally they're talking about this they're finally gonna get over this mm. shit and then gabriel burns like no you're not <laughs> psych <laughs> just kidding just real quickly that's something that struck me about hereditary on this last rewatch is how that's basically a bifurcated narrative for a lot of its runtime just in my memory i thought annie was the protagonist of the film but it really is both of them there's a push-pull between them where I think anytime they share a scene together, the movie reaches a new level of quality. One of my favorite bits of it when I was re-watching is just when he's asking her for permission to go to the party. Mm. She's like, you're not going to be drinking there, right? And just their uh-huh. interplay is so detailed. It's just like Ari Aster definitely had this actual conversation with his real mother. <laughs> this is therapy. He just immediately, they have had this conversation (laughs) a few times and they have had much more explosive variants of it Mm -hmm. just their defensiveness and the way that they're trying to like navigate each other but the way that they also provoke each other Mm -hmm. where he's like no i really wasn't going to they're so bitchy (laughs) oh yeah for me i think that family dynamic is like the thing that i found most interesting about hereditary because like i think the horror element is it's nice but at times it can kind of feel a little bit like window dressing which is not something i can say about his other stuff where it feels both intertwined a bit more so but i like hereditary probably the most because of just how strong that family dynamic is and because of how genuine it feels because i think for me like the horror is as effective as it is because of just how much you genuinely kind of care for these characters, even though you understand of just like, ah, there's something just not right going on there. I think that's that funny game's tension. They're running up against the conventions of the horror genre, which are very mean and very like uncaring and violent, but they respond to violence the way that real people would with horror and shock. It's that element that makes it really interesting to me. And if nothing else, I think visually it's probably my least favorite because like something of his later work that I found kind of interesting is Hereditary has like a lot of focus on darker scenes that are like the stereotypical scary movie sort of visuals. But the thing I've liked about his more recent stuff is there is kind of a horror and like a sick mundane visuals. Even though Midsummer is very flowery and kind of has that visual element to it, the fact that it is just plain ass grasslands or something like just genuinely unnerving it makes me think of the fucking windows startup <laughs> like microsoft screensaver horror it just looks <laughs> nothing ever has actually looked like this and so it's just like you're going in there and it looks incredible but also wrong this is an acidic non-place hereditary feels too polished in that sense of what a horror film should probably look like and i think that's why the horror is not my favorite element of it but still uses its shadows really nicely but knowing where he's gone now i think i'm very interested in that visual look it's always tough for me being the ride or die aster fan that it almost feels like any praise i level at them will just kind of be dismissed or dissuaded Mm -hmm. as hype and i mean sure that's fine 
But at the same time, what I really like about Aster's first two movies is that I get really caught up in the emotion of both of them. And that's something that I can't necessarily say for other directors of his kind that we have compared him to, even though I enjoy them on the peripheral. Like, you know, you have your Hanukkahs, for example, whereas like I really like a lot of his movies and I'm really engaged with a lot of his movies. But like as a person who has specific preferences and art and aesthetics, Hanukkah is a little dry for me. Mm. He's got a really minimalist aesthetic and he's got a really stripped back approach to yeah. visuals that I appreciate. It adds to the vibe of his movie. It's also just not particularly my thing. That's a screenwriter who uses the same two names. It's Anna and George. Anna and George. They're almost like ideas yeah. as much as they are people. It feels a bit cold, and like I know that it is cold with intention, and it is cold and it works, but it's also in a way that it's like, I love cachet. Also, this movie's kind of ugly, and I hate looking <laughs> at it. So like I know that's kind of, it's a bit reductive, but at the same time, I can't help how I feel. Like I like funny games for a lot of the same reasons. I like it for its cruelty and giddiness, but Aster is one of those few people who've come along who, I mean, he's just a sick bastard. <laughs> like, there's no amount of Ari Aster will, you know, make a three hour long movie about his Oedipal complex instead of going to therapy memes that are ever going to actually disbalance the fact that there is something wrong with the world that we let this man make movies. <laughs> and I have an allure to that. We're paying to watch him go to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, if you go away from Hereditary and you don't think, like, the man who made this must be repressed in, like, 70,000 different ways that I never <laughs> want to find out the full extent of, then I don't think you fully paid attention to the movie. Hereditary is a great movie for me because it's a perfect emotional torture chamber. Everything about it feels precise, even though it's a long movie, it's a big movie with lots of ideas, lots of things on its mind, it's taking from lots of different tropes, but at the same time it executes everything with just this laser precision you're just on this roller coaster ride through hell and sometimes hell is getting your head cut off and sometimes it's being in the same room as your mother and then you have midsummer which is way more cathartic of a movie for me like that is a deeply funny deeply horrific movie that just sort of explores this fantastical idea, the sick, twisted version of wish fulfillment. It's a terrifically twisted little dive into hell. And I admire its audacity. I admire the performances a lot. I think Pugue is terrific in that, just as terrific as Wolf and Colette are in Hereditary. Normally, somebody like him would make a movie like Hereditary and then would probably just keep making movies that are a lot like Hereditary. But Midsummer has a penchant for cruelty, but it's in a lot of different ways. And the family dynamic is gone and it hones in on this state of grief. I'm a big Aster guy, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I cannot help the way that I am. I appreciate the relationship that his movies have with narcotics. And I don't mean that as a joke. Like, I like that they're immersed in college kids smoking resin and doing mushrooms <laughs> and smoking weed there's just a certain like immaturity to his work which i think segues us into his third and most audacious uh, film yet really uh, an immaturity i i referred to his latest <laughs> bow is afraid which is a three-hour cartoon odyssey as a sistine chapel of immaturity and vulgarity uh. <laughs> but there's something kind of 
compelling about it that's real and familiar. Even in Midsummer, which I've always kind of had a little bit of a questionable relationship with some of the side characters, it's just like Mark, played by Will Poulter, is just like, that is a dude that I know. <laughs> yep. I've met that guy. He's always fucking vaping, making jokes when it shouldn't be. Somebody should tell them to stop picking flowers, <laughs> stupid. That is the thing about Mark. I hate that guy because I sometimes am that guy. <laughs> Morgan, you do seem like the type of dude who would go to Sweden and then die trying to get laid. <laughs> oh. Uh. Which I say with love. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and frankly, it was worth it. <laughs> It's okay. Anything is better than being the William Jackson Harper character in that movie, I think. Don't be the academia <laughs> dork. Just witnessing a man die horribly and then be like, did you steal my thesis? <laughs> There's some other things on my mind right now. That lady lost her face, bro. Listen, listen bro. Uh, from the looks of things, I am, by a fair margin, <laughs> this film's biggest defender <laughs> in this call. So, Bo is afraid is actually based on a short that Astor made, released in 2011, simply called Bo. And it was basically the opening act of the film in a short film version. Huh. It's basically a better adaptation of Stephen King's 1408 than 1408 is. So mm. That tracks. The best way to describe Bo is Afraid, I think, is that this is at least four movies crammed into one three-hour runtime in the service of one joke that doubles, triples, quadruples, quintuples. I don't know what tuples uh. is next, but it does that too in the service of one joke. And that joke is that his mother, Ari Aster's mother... <laughs> the first thing I said when I walked out of the theater, I looked at my roommate who I saw it with, made the hour-long odyssey to see it in grand old IMAX, which if nothing else was worth the price of admission for the opening, I don't know, minute or so of the film, just to have IMAX sound <laughs> for that. <laughs> <laughs> a shit post of IMAX proportions. I actually want to unpack that just a bit because the movie opens with these images of birth. And it's one of three 2020s movies that I think are kind of like shit posts about being afraid to be born into the modern era, the other two being Inyaritsu's Bardo and Leos Carax's Annette. Hmm, there's something there. Weird, anxiety-ridden, cartoonish, exaggerated, I don't know, <laughs> fantasy neuroses. <laughs> Look, it's the best time to be a film fan in the world, perhaps ever, if you have a severe anxiety disorder. <laughs> There has never been such representation. As we were walking out of the theater at the end of Bo is Afraid, I looked at my roommate that I went with and I said, I hope Ari Aster's mom has passed on so she never has to see that. Like Steven Spielberg's parents before he made oh, the fable. God. <laughs> like that, but so much worse. Oh, like, I cannot imagine... <laughs> Like, Jake, this is if you made a movie about your dad. I think oh, it would look a lot oh like this. Jesus Christ. Oh. You might even depict your father in a similar way to how Aster depicts Bo's father. I'm not sure. Yeah. Oh. 
If A24, $35 million to make a three-hour movie about my dad, it would also be a movie that alienated everyone, and I wouldn't care a bit. I would be sitting there laughing with popcorn, being like, ah, you dumb motherfuckers. Uh, Astra's really on the, uh, he heard the phrase, one for them, one for me, and then said, fuck it, they're all for me. Eat my ass. You can watch if you want, but uh, I'm kind of just up here doing some shit on my own. And frankly, whoever said we have to marvel at the world that let Ari Aster make movies or something to that effect. I thank God that we let Ari Aster make movies because I think if he didn't, he would blow up a hospital or something. (laughs) Everyone who has worked with Aster talks about him. They say just what a great presence and experience working with him has been. And I don't doubt that's true for a second. And I'm sure it is only because he gets to do this. <laughs> Ari Aster, friend of Mariah Carey. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, I would love to hear from you. I would love oh, to hear God. all the thoughts in your head and all the feelings in your heart. Yeah, sure. Uh, let's see. Another <laughs> opinion of mine this week that has gotten me crucified by multiple people. I'm just I'm going to open with a quote. Uh, this is Orson <laughs> Welles speaking on Woody Allen. <laughs> I hate Woody Allen physically. I dislike that kind of man. Oh, yes. I can hardly bear to talk to him. He has a chaplain disease. That particular combination of arrogance and timidity sets my teeth on edge. He is arrogant. Like all people with timid personalities, his arrogance is unlimited. Anybody who speaks quietly and shrivels up in company is unbelievably arrogant. He acts shy, but he's not. He's scared. He hates himself, and he loves himself. A very tense situation. It's people like me who have to carry on and pretend to be modest. <laughs> to me, it's the most embarrassing thing in the world. A man who presents himself at his worst to get laughs in order to free himself from his hangups. Everything he does on the screen is therapeutic, and I'm glad for him to do it, but I fucking hated this movie. <laughs> That's all three Astor films, Ooh. like boom, 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 one, two, three. <laughs> I found it to be an extremely repetitive, you know, like you were saying, Morgan, doubling down, tripling down, quadrupling down on that one joke. But it wore out on me after a half hour. I can see why this would be a short film. And it probably makes a great short film. But we're touching, you know, three hours here. And it's just draining. Like, by the halfway point, I was fighting to stay awake. And then that needle drop came in towards the end. (laughs) And I had to cover my hand to keep me from screaming in the auditorium. (laughs) You know, the weird thing is that I found that this had... A really great supporting cast. Nathan Lane, Amy Ryan, Parker Posey, Patty Lupone, who I think all do really well with the material that they've been given. The beloved Jewish mom character actors canon, Jesus. <laughs> Patty Lupone here to remind everybody that she's a Juilliard graduate. <laughs> By God. Really, her speech that she gives in this is just what she does to people who see her on Broadway and she notices that they have their phones out. <laughs> So I thought the supporting cast was pretty good with the material they've been given. Honestly, I would say Amy Ryan and Nathan Lane were the MVPs as this completely deranged suburban family. (laughs) Hey, sport. What's up, my dude? (laughs) (laughs) But to be honest, I thought that Joaquin Phoenix kind of sucked. It's a Joker-esque role-in performance, I would say. It might be more shallow than Joker, and that's saying something. All right. (laughs) All right. 
you know, the main thing for me is that length too, is just that like my buy-in waned over time. There's mm-hmm. like a moment or an image or a performance in just about every scene, chapter, whatever, that I found interesting or funny or engaging. And then they would just like drag certain things out. But the main thing is that Bo, just like Alex Wolf, Tony Collette, Florence Pugh, he's on a string. He's like a plaything for Ari Aster. Mm-hmm. We've talked a lot about Ari Aster's relationship with his mother, or Bo's relationship with his mother, but it doesn't go much deeper than that. And I don't think that it has, like, after rewatching Hereditary, I don't think that it has, like, the same deep level of, like, lived in connection between the mother and the son yeah. to really go anywhere. It feels more, like, satirical and broad. And for me, it works best when it's just in cartoon mode in that, like, first act. Uh-huh. There's a scene with a bathtub <laughs> where Bo's in the bathtub and there's a there's uh-huh. a dude over the top of him who's been hiding in his apartment. And then that all culminates with, I think, the absolutely funniest moment in the entire movie and the most anxiety-inducing where he's yes. confronted by the cop. Mm-hmm. And the cop's uh, like, yeah. don't make me do this! <laughs> God. The first act... Or so, like, I don't know, like the first 45 minutes to an hour, as much as I loved the Nathan Lane, Amy Ryan section, I think that first hour or so, that is just golden to me. It is like a fucking Rube Goldberg (laughs) of errors. That's the part where the doubling and tripling down of the jokes really is the most effective to me. Just backtracking a little bit, I do want to say that this is pretty far from Joaquin's best. I think... This is mainly down to the script, as it was in Joker, really. Mm -hmm. His only role is to react, and Mm -hmm. that really begins to wear. And I think it's a purposeful choice, and I think there's something that Aster's getting about, about just living in the world with crippling anxiety. Mm -hmm. I think might have landed if the film was shorter and also focused on that in a broader sense as a result phoenix is kind of outshined by most of the other players here oh yeah kind of feels like his character is more so like a prop more than (laughs) anything else even more so than like actual props in the story he feels like a prop it reminds me of like a silent protagonist in a first person shooter Mm. yes you're just watching aster play the game right you're not playing yourself that first act of it for me felt like a little bit of a blend between like the horny gotta get off nightmare dripping urban environments of a racer head meeting with the odyssey cartoon mishaps mm-hmm. of after hours and also like just thought about that swordfish bathroom graffiti joke because mm-hmm. there's so mm-hmm. much mm-hmm. like visual vulgarity everywhere to me what both of those two comparisons are is like a character being put through a cartoonish set of awful circumstances the ringer as it were which this movie is at like 180 minutes instead of just 80 minutes and that's where like that lack of agency comes in the most interesting thing that occurred to me throughout it though is because it has similar themes to hereditary and a bunch of visual callbacks to both hereditary and midsummer it kind of felt like a loose parody of Mm -hmm. quote-unquote like elevated horror or psychological dramas and psychological horrors that take real anxieties and then turn them into nightmare scenarios and movies where I kind of felt like Aster was poking fun at himself, not just as a person, but as a director, as a creator who creates these horrible environments for the characters. Cause that's yeah. like the thing in hereditary where it's like, 
They're just mm-hmm. horrible pawns in this horrible machine. And that's the same thing that's going on here, but to such an exaggerated, lunatic degree that it almost feels like commentary on yeah. his own work. And not even just his own work, but almost like the entire cottage industry of elevated horror as a whole that he especially helped to build at A24. The Twitter reactions to Puss in Boots about anxiety attacks, right? Like, it's become like a part of media, I think. And there's just kind of a reflectiveness here. This is literally doubling down. It's the way that I thought about it. It was like, if Aster needs therapy, this is a movie about how the therapy is not fucking working. (laughs) He's not making Maybe he should try uh, electroshock therapy. Needs to find a new guy. (laughs) (laughs) Stephen McKinley Henderson, we love you, but maybe not doing as well as he could (laughs) to help this man Oh my god. Actually, you know what? Stephen McKinley Henderson was my MVP of this entire movie. Yeah, that's Mm. a good call. When he's smirking in a scene, Uh, and he's just, uh, it's so fucking unnerving and funny. (laughs) (laughs) That guy's a riot. I love seeing him, even though he's always playing small characters. You know, whatever he's going to do is going to be great. They didn't understand it. Showing up as that mentat <laughs> in Doom yeah. and doing the eye roll thing. because And then his little umbrella. I won't say anything about what happens in the scene, just out of the interest of, you know, spoilers, but Richard Kind is mm. hilarious. There's a lot of good phone bits. There's an yeah. early Richard Kind on the phone, and there's just a lot of good like yeah. voicemails. Bo's mom's voicemail is, leave me a message if you ever want to hear from me again. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm off the Astor bandwagon at this point. Me and Charlie Kaufman can go worry about death and dead <laughs> bodies over there, and I, I don't have that fear of death, so you know what? I'm all good. I'm all good. You guys go make that. I'll be over here, unbothered, you know, moisturized, fulfilled, in my own lane. (laughs) We've already kind of said it, but it's truly amazing that they, like, made this and released it. And it speaks to a certain level of confidence that they have in him from those first two movies and their popularity and the way Mm -hmm. that people enjoy them. That he's able to make what he referred to as a Jewish Lord of the Rings, but Bo's just going to his mom house if you pumped a 10-year-old full of Zoloft and had him get your groceries. God. Never been more seen by anything than that last part. <laughs> Literal Zoloft. And what am I if not a large 10-year-old? <laughs> well, I think it's finally time to talk about, as I mentioned way at the beginning, the big meatball in the center of our big plate of pasta here. Hmm. The movie that I got to see as kind of a double feature with Bo is Afraid, there's a big gap in the middle for it to be a double feature, got to see Bo is Afraid in IMAX, and then I got to see in Dolby, the latest film in the Evil Dead franchise. It's also a key unifying theme here, not just in the mommy issues thing between these two movies, but also in the terror of elevators. (laughs) And shitty apartment complexes in general. Getting your hand fucked up. A very specific fear of downtown Los Angeles. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That, like, first half of Bo is Afraid is like a NIMBY nightmare. Yeah, it's what every person who wakes up in San Francisco thinks when they see one homeless person in front of their favorite coffee shop. It's like, oh, who turned this place into a DMZ? What's going on here? The first hour of Bo is Afraid is just a can't-have-shit-in-Detroit joke extended to an hour. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking brown recluse spiders everywhere. (laughs) Can't have shit in this house. But this movie, Evil Dead Rise, turned out to be just a great double feature with Bo is Afraid in a number of different thematic ways. And I think it helped for me to emphasize the strengths of this new Evil Dead movie, which have to do with its conciseness and its 
ferocity and its movement and just how fucking fun it is. This is the first film in the franchise since the 2013 Fede Alvarez reboot, which moved away from the tone of the original three Raimi films, became a lot grislier, a lot more... I wouldn't say that it's serious, but there's just kind of a severity to its tone that doesn't really mesh with the cartoonishness of two. Maybe with the down and dirty indie of the original, The Evil Dead, but not really so much with Raimi's oeuvre, if you will. There was a television series in the interim called Ash vs. Evil Dead, which I've seen the first season of, but not anymore, which obviously brings back Ash Williams as the chainsaw-wielding protagonist of the franchise. It's a little bit off the mark for me. It's a little too much of the legacy sequel, deferential, we're just here to show you guys what you like and the things that you are fans of. Aha. Evil Dead Rise, I think, does a phenomenal job of bringing a formal sensibility in terms of camera work, editing, lensing choices that evoke Raimi's original films and the fun of them, while striking out this new ground and basically being the most fun I've had with a horror movie since Barbarian mm-hmm. from last year. Yeah, I'll quickly go ahead and go through a little bit of the plot and then jump a little ahead in time. This movie has a cold open. I'm going to skip that just for one second. It's a story about a woman who's visiting her sister who lives in LA in a high rise with her three children. And the five of them all come together and they're just having a nice little night when all of a sudden there's an earthquake. And this earthquake leads to a situation where the eldest kid does some dumb fuckboy horror movie shit, finds the Necronomicon, of course, and then unleashes the demonic force that we all know and love, and it goes ape shit. Prior to meeting them, we get this great cold open, though, and I just I wanted to kind of get the premise out of the way so that I could come back and we could have a bigger discussion about this, because this cold open is fucking fire. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. The funny thing about this movie is I think you could remove like the last five or so minutes of the film and this cold open in the film. The core of it wouldn't be that different, but it just so much to flavor by having it, you know, and it's just it both sort of harkens back to the cabin in the woods origins of the franchise while also turning that on its head and just doing a lot of really smart, interesting stuff in a short amount of time and also the hardest title drop of the century. <laughs> oh, Hell yeah. God. I had to physically restrain myself. <laughs> I'm just like, fuck it. Yes! <laughs> yes! The score that's playing over that title drop goes hard. Oh, good. God. One other callback in terms of that woodsiness is you get that drone shot that comes in over the water which i think is Mm -hmm. just such a great touch such a great callback to like the classic imagery of the series and then you see that it's like a character flying a drone around which gives you this kind of like comedic bit although there is a second drone shot with that drone in frame (laughs) that is like no 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 the demon's here don't get it twisted Uh. (laughs) people go and get dismembered my absolute favorite choice of this scene which is why I wanted to emphasize it so much. There's almost like a visual gag of one of the characters who's out at this lake, who's like a girl that doesn't really want to be there, doesn't want to hang out with her friend's shitty boyfriend. Her friend has been possessed by the demon, so she's like not in the picture right away. And she's reading Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights. 
And it almost feels like it's just going to be like a throwaway reference as we see a little bit later on in this movie with some music posters and things like that. It reminds me of that, you know, I'm coming over. You better not be reading an oversized copy of Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar, (laughs) that type of shot in a movie with Wuthering Heights. But then when the friend confronts the demon, suddenly we get these anamorphic lenses scrolling across the page as the demon who is facing away from the book and not looking at it is reciting. Bronte's prose in that fucking horrible demon voice. And I just, I want to bring it up because it's such a visually creative scene. And in a world of countless literary adaptations from the UK, from America, Jane Austen, the Bronte sisters, Louisa Alcott, this is one of the most exciting and invigorating uses of literature in film that I've seen in a long fucking time because it takes that prose and it's like, Emily Bronte was metal, dude. (laughs) And I fucking loved it. It's like, it takes the novel and it makes it feel as blood-curdling as watching somebody get their face ripped off. It has almost the same, like, emotional weight as one of the, like, demonic readings that becomes a plot point later on. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. And it's, like, insignificant in the grand scheme of a moment like that, but it's also just, this old English makes me fucking scared. (laughs) (laughs) I think the camera's even making love to the page the same way that it would on those images in the Necronomicon of yeah. like all the demons and the horrible imagery, because it's just going right across that text. It's just, I really loved it. I went into this movie like, oh, I'm going to have a good time. And then that happened. I was like, damn, this, owns, <laughs> this is so cool. This is the real shit. He has the juice. When the title drop happened, which I had been warned ahead of time that it was the hardest title drop of the year. And I was like, all right. I'm setting myself up to be wowed here. And I full on did the Antonio Banderas gif when it happened of just the <laughs> <laughs> just pedal to the metal for 90 straight minutes. And there's nothing I love more than a movie that knows how to build a satisfying, tight theatrical experience without feeling anemic. And this did that and mm. then some. And it pretty much blends what I think are disparate elements of every single part of the previous versions of Evil Dead, be it the sort of grisliness and sort of attempt at familial drama that's in the remake, the cartoonishness of stuff like Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness, and it manages to make me squirm as often as I laugh at it. There are moments where it oscillates between the two so frequently that you don't know how to feel in the moment. What this movie does so smartly, too, is that It kind of, in the remake, the 2013 version, it really leans heavily on showing you and forecasting lots of objects and, like, pieces that are going to be the pivotal moments or objects in a set piece later that's, like, really obvious. Like, the, the, the meat carver, for example, it really hones in on that shot of, or the chainsaw out in the shed is very much focused on, like, you know, an hour before that even comes into play. This movie does that, but a lot more subtly but still in a way that I feel like evoked the kind of mechanical interlocking screenplay of somebody like Edgar Wright, who knows how to set up basically everything beforehand it happens, but still without feeling like there was a formula there. The little stick that the little girl has named uh, uh, (laughs) Daphne, that got set up, and I was like, 
one of two things is going to happen with that stick. It's going to break and somebody's head is going to get jammed into it, or the demon is going to put somebody's head on Staffney later. And one of those two things does happen, and it's fucking glorious. <laughs> and there's another part where they set up ahead of time the little peephole in the door that sets up that wonderful little like uh, anamorphic mm. lens shot of it. And there's just this part where the other tenants of the apartment get fucking brutalized uh. in the hallway before everything starts happening and people are getting tossed aside without arms eyes are being ripped out of sockets through mouths and coughed into other mouths it is <laughs> so amazing and then it'll cut back to something like one of the characters like the eldest sister one of the like grisliest parts of the movie for me is where this just inky black shit is just leaking out of her head and she like coughs up a thing of bugs and it is just all the goopiest nastiest shit in all the ways you want an evil dead movie to be but this still has a lot of ideas that it's got that really appeal to me in the sense that it really feels like they took the components and the framework of Evil Dead as a franchise and decided to explore something with that framework, that being the family dynamic at play. You get a really wonderful sense of dynamic and interplay between these guys. They have really charming chemistry with each other. They behave like actual siblings. They fight a little bit, but they also, they're really looking out for each other. They have a really strong familial bond that my girlfriend and I couldn't help but draw parallels between the fact that this family and her own family are like exactly the fucking same. There's one detail I love about the brother who is played by a trans actor, actually. Uh, spotted that immediately and proud of my little trans mm -hmm. radar there. I had the same thing. I was like, there's some gender going yes, on like, here. Mm -hmm. And then they turned out to be a fucking music nut, which like <laughs> is just like a double down, just like, of course, the trans character's a DJ. This just makes too much sense. So you get little details of them having Jay Dilla's donuts on vinyl as they're trying to like mix their own shit. They have an MF Doom sticker on their little setup that they've got. And like even the stupid shit, like when the brother goes down into the hole to eventually find the Necronomicon and vinyls. And it's like, yes, this is a stupid thing. And what I like is that not only is it acknowledged as being stupid, it's justified within the narrative because they're all poor and they need money. And then he's just like, hey, what if there's something in this cool old bank vault that mom can sell for money? So it's like, it's a bit more than the original 2013 movie where the guy just gets the book and is like, why don't I read this dark spell aloud for no reason? <laughs> Nothing a battle happen. And then once we get into the thick of things, the guilt of actually bringing this upon is like a major component of the character. And it's like you said earlier, Zach, with Hereditary, there's always moments in that movie where the characters take a moment to react like real people do to this horrific outlandish violence. And that's a through line that I noticed here is that all of these people always react like normal, real, actual people, no matter how outlandish mm. what's going on is. Yeah, I think the whole thing where... The oldest kid just jumps straight into the hole in the ground. Like, this is what happens when you raise your kid in a city. They just, they don't know that the world, there are parts <laughs> of the world that have consequences. They don't get it. It's especially egregious when you live in California and somehow you have not learned basic earthquake safety. <laughs> Look, we deserve trans idiots in cinema, damn it. We need the representation. There's an equally bad sin where the sister 
Losing her cool drops the pizzas on the garage floor, <laughs> which I find ridiculous. Yeah. Uh. Fucking protect that shit with your life. <laughs> I would have held onto those pizzas so much harder, yeah. just as an instinct. When they picked up the pizzas, Rhiannon was just like, that shit's still going to taste like pizza. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. As long as the box didn't break. Don't worry about it. Pizza's pizza. Just pick the cheese off the top of the box. Don't worry about it. Didn't actually touch the ground. Get a fork. I don't know. I actually want to talk about the way that this transplants the series from, you know, a cabin in the woods and very specifically takes it down to this high rise in downtown LA that's been condemned and it's going to be demolished in less than a month. And going to an urban environment, it reminds me a lot of what Scream 6 was trying to do earlier this year by going from Woodsboro to New York City. But I think this does a much better job at capturing the specific kinds of terror that can happen from living in an area of LA that has been abandoned by the city government, by the influential people. And it's just become a hopeless disaster zone that nobody wants to take care of or help the people who are stuck there. Specifically, this old ass apartment building where there's an earthquake. So everything's more isolated than ever. Telephone lines are down, power's out, the stairs have crumbled, the elevator's broken. And it makes you feel just as isolated as you would be if it was that cabin in the woods. Even the fire escape, I think, is behind a locked door, the outdoor fire escape, which they would have to scale Mm -hmm. in the rain because it is storming outside. Jake said this earlier and compared it to Edgar Wright, the screenwriter it brought to mind for me, which could go either way for you, goes either way for me sometimes, was David Kep, screenwriter of Jurassic Park, Mm. Panic Room, because it slowly taking all these resources one by one by one by one away from these characters and saying, you've got to survive the night and you've got Staffney, you've got a tattoo gun, you've got a cheese grater, <laughs> like, you know, things that are in the home. Scissors, wine glass. God. I don't know that it makes the most out of that high rise apartment situation. There's maybe some things left on the table. I love the way that it uses the neighbors, as Jake has already said, because I kind of thought like, okay, here are these two cute kids. They want to watch all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. There are no bad ones. They're going to factor into the plot. (laughs) Nah, that kid just got fucking funny games outside the door. (laughs) Blood on the goddamn peephole. This movie's willingness to brutalize children is commendable. John Carpenter. (laughs) Speaking of the parts of LA that have been abandoned by everybody, welcome to Assault on Precinct 18, baby. There's one thing about this movie that kept me continuously engaged, and it was that aforementioned oscillation between scary and hilarious. The Deadites in this are as funny as they are when they were in Evil Dead 2. Yeah. There were lines that people were saying when we walked out of the theater, like they were quoting the mom when she called the children a bunch of titty-sucking parasites. (laughs) Like, they get so hysterically (laughs) vulgar. It really takes advantage of the fact that they're subverting this very believable, but still mostly wholesome family thing that they've got going on. And they take such relentless pleasure in breaking them apart. Yeah. It pulls no punches because the shit that happens with the sister the eldest sibling man woof i hope they flavored that wine glass poking through her neck (laughs) it's that crunching with the blood on the shards i have a quick note back on suzume which we talked about earlier there's a moment where the aunt who is Mm -hmm. taking care of her niece right is kind of possessed 
by one of the deities and she tells her niece off. She's like, fuck you. You're a burden on me. And she kind of says all these things that are inside of her that are dark and nasty. And then when that moment's over, she's like, I mean, I felt all those things. Those things are all real, but they're not the only things that I felt. And that's kind of what the deadites mm. do here within this family dynamic where the mom's like, no, you guys are a burden. Fuck you. There's three of you idiots. <laughs> or the sister who she is always calling like a groupie or kind of talking down to whether jokingly or lovingly or whatever. That like really bothers the sister to be told yeah. that because she's like, no, mm-hmm. oh, I'm a guitar technician. Like this is my job. Fuck yeah. you. You're a tattoo yeah. artist. What are you talking shit about? <laughs> You're just mad because you have three kids. That tattoo machine in the yeah. eyeball, mm-hmm. though. Oh, oh my fucking god. Oh, 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 <laughs> Nasty. <laughs> Dead space two moment. And it's sustained for like several seconds, and it's like ah, what? Dead space without yeah. the laser. There's a particular elevator sequence. Actually, there's two elevator sequences in this movie. The first of which I think is one of those quintessential examples of how they do a flawless job of translating the Evil Dead formula into this new setting where the classic sort of staple of this formula and horror is the person in the woods, you know, the vines and they get that and they kind of go up some places. That happens. Except in this version, it's a bunch of steel cables and they go down and they like ah. get in the elevator and they start contorting her and it's just like oh god this is like watching the Suspiria remake for the first time again oh this is nasty yeah. the bones are so crunchy like you you can't ever tell when this movie does practical or cg like it really blends it to the point where any given example of body horror is going to gross you the fuck out no matter what happens and when the elevator comes back later and there are what must have been thousands of gallons of blood happening and amazing homage to The Shining, which couldn't have been an accident. I think if I remember right, they said they used at least 6,500 liters of blood and they had a lab going to, you know, keep it fresh and flowing and nasty and sticky. One of my favorite images of that scene is when you see the blood start to rise behind the lights of the buttons. So you see like a miniature version of what's about to happen to them. So good. (laughs) Can I also add, since we're kind of on the subject of visuals, great movie for people who are a fan of split diopter shots. It's me, I'm people. Or Dutch angles, because this has like fucking several. This movie's split diopters are so hard that even Davy Peppers gave this a four and a half. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That split diopter shot of when she's at the stove. Beth. Yep, Beth and the kids are over here and then Ellie's over here making the worst omelet I've ever (laughs) seen in my entire life. She is not good at that. You're getting some shells in the pan. That shit gonna give you salmonella. There's nothing to grease it. There's like not even any cheese. Go get the pizza. The flame is too high. Yeah. Using a cast iron for some damn reason. She's one of those people that really hung on to the gas stove thing, even though that's a faux pas. <laughs> that's why your building's getting demolished. Still bitch. <laughs> the one of those images that really gets me is after the Staffney activation scene, if you will. There's just the scene with that little baby oh, doll head with the oh blood. God. And you see the sister standing over the top oh. of it. Which is such a grim moment because mm-hmm. like the thing about any zombie movie like this or the Evil Dead movies is like, mm-hmm. it's people that you love are being turned into these demonic forces mm-hmm. and they're dead. Like, they're, that's not your sister yeah. anymore. That's not your mom anymore or whatever. Right. But then you have to cut your sister's head off with a chainsaw. Potentially fight against your entire family as they Voltron together. <laughs> 
that was so unbelievably fucking cool when a scene right out of the end of Akira starts happening. My thought was like, okay, now we have the best Resident Evil movie. I like that that strategy is kind of bad uh-huh. on the part of the Deadites. It makes it more of a single target. It's the exaggerated arrogance that the Deadites get as the night goes on because they're so confident yes. that they're going to kill everyone in the building that they end up turning themselves into this abomination that is very easily defeatable. So much of their tool set is based on fear and yeah. intimidation. Mm-hmm. Naturally, this big-ass ball of motherfuckers just coming at you in the dark, that's terrifying. Looking like John Carpenter's The Thing, yeah. quite honestly. It really did look like The Thing prequel, but good. <laughs> Looks like the uh, human mesh monster from the end of Inside. Not not Bo Burnham's Inside, oh. but the games. When we got this group of people together, we joked about it being Voltron all the movies we wanted to talk about and all the guests so when the deadites flip open the necronomicon to a page that's like let's make a fucking deadite voltron i really gasped it has been foretold <laughs> that's such a perfect moment. <laughs> really kind of ups the stakes and why i like rise so much and why i would say that in the canon of the evil dead franchise a franchise i have an amazing amount of affinity for i'd say that overall i'd be willing to say this is maybe the second strongest movie in it because it's not only being honest to the roots of the franchise by combining that like perfect tone of comedy and horror, both in its most potent form since Evil Dead 2, which is still pretty much the benchmark for me. Like the filmmaking in that is just basically going to be unrivaled until somebody gets real fucking daring again. Mm. But this movie is just so creative every single step of the way. And I feel like that's what, like, I like this and the 2013 movie a lot. I have a lot of nostalgia for that movie. And I think it has a really, really tight grip on atmosphere that not really any of the other Evil Dead movies managed to have. But this, as a result, really becomes a more well-rounded movie. It becomes a little bit more character and story-driven in a way that the older, like, Raimi movies aren't quite, because Ash is just kind of a cartoon (laughs) character, and he's kind of a a meat puppet, to use the words of Maggot Mommy. (laughs) Part of me kind of wants them to give another one of these to Lee Cronin, because I feel like with an even bigger budget, he could do something weirder, wackier, bigger, make his own version of Evil Dead 2. Or they just keep on handing Evil Dead movies to prom promising aspiring up-and-coming horror filmmakers where they give like a modest budget be like do something new do something tight do something well oiled no yeah if i was warner brothers i'd be like oh we got something let's get one of these every other year globally it opened up to just a little under 41 million this weekend overall the budget is like 15 or 18 million somewhere in there so it's already made like over twice back which is cinema lives we are so bad (laughs) it's such a testament to the idea that if you put your back into making something in terms of your shot selection in terms of your camera placement that's all i could think about watching this was like i think some people will probably get precious because you know people get precious about sam raimi for reasons i don't totally understand or about their evil dead movies and what an evil dead movie is supposed to be or it's not as good as the 2013 one it's not as gory or whatever the fuck all i could think watching this was like I, i already mentioned it I think it compares well to the themes of like urban desolation that you were talking about, Cole, is Barbarian. It's the most inventively shot horror movie I have seen since Barbarian. Yeah. And as long yeah. as you do that, I'm going to fucking ride with it. Like, it just goes hard. <laughs> Sometimes a movie just needs to go hard. There's one image in Evil Dead Rise that I kept thinking about that really speaks to that theme of the urban sprawl part of it is that when shit really starts going down, 
she opens the window, the aunt, and she calls for help. Uh, and yeah. the only people there is a homeless person in the middle of a storm who just walks on by like he didn't even hear anything. And I feel like that's the horror of Evil Dead Rise. It's mm. that like even if there is community mm. or family or someone there close by to you, anything could come along and rupture that connection. And when that connection is gone, anything yeah. goes. Yeah, I mean, it's the classic, the roads back out of the cabin are flooded. No way out. Doing that in the city is really fucking impressive, too, just like from a yeah. filmic construction standpoint. I know we had to conjure an earthquake to get it done, but <laughs> look, a couple of weeks ago in Kentucky, we had a statewide power outage. Mm -hmm. And for a couple of days, we didn't have power and it felt like we were in the fucking dark ages. So when this yeah. it happened in this movie, it was just like, <laughs> I'm uncomfortable with how close we are to that, frankly. <laughs> and I mean, it's not unrealistic because one day the big one is going to hit L.A., and then me and everyone else will be at the bottom of the Pacific, so. Hopefully the cat guarding the gate in L.A. <laughs> does its job. <laughs> Koto should, I don't know, wait a minute. Save Sorry. us, Suzume. <laughs> wait a minute. They couldn't get to Los Angeles fast enough because they're in Japan. Because <laughs> they got stuck at L.A. They were going from east to west instead of across the Pacific. <laughs> parkouring like fucking crazy across California. <laughs> <laughs> like breaking <sighs> anchor man. It's like, I don't know what we're laughing about. <laughs> <laughs> said this multiple times both before this movie released in the anticipation of it and especially after that evil dead is the greatest long-running horror franchise of all time not only are there no misses but in my eyes all of them are capital g great that trend only continues upwards with rise you always talk about how some movies live up to expectations and sometimes they dip below expectations or sometimes they exceed expectations. But it's rare that we talk about a movie that is like exactly what it needed to be. This was just the shot in the arm that the series needed. And like, I am just begging Warner Brothers, do what you do with this one. Get somebody who cares. Don't get like fucking, mm -hmm. I don't know. Peyton Reed or something like they obviously wouldn't get Peyton Reed, but like they just Scott yeah, uh, Derrickson. Oh, please, God, no, I can't. Or like Nikolaj Arcel, who fucking did Dark Tower. Oh no! Ooh. Oh boy. My point is the reason that this movie is doing well critically with audiences financially. The reason for that is because you got people who care. Either get yeah. this guy again, or if he doesn't want to do it. Get somebody else who does. Go get your Zach Krager. Listen. Yeah. <laughs> that would actually Look, be... Dude, I would lose Look, my if you, shit. If you want to talk about the meeting point between comedy and horror, I mean, that... Exactly. Uh, oh my god. It's Justin Long <laughs> in the basement with a tape measure. What up, faggot? <laughs> I mean, that's so easy to sell, too. You say, from the director of Barbarian. It's like, like people are just going to be like, oh, Pays shit. itself back in a night. I can't believe that I saw both Barbarian and Evil Dead Rise in the same Dolby Auditorium. Sickos. Oh, again. It is a wonderful time to be alive, except for all the other shit. <laughs> <laughs> the world is falling apart. Our cities are going to shit. Earthquakes are going to tear California into the Pacific Ocean. But the movies are alive and well. Uh, At least we got the movies. Luke, Jake, Morgan, thank you guys all so much for showing up and talking about our big watch list of new releases this has been like a ton of fun it's yeah, really yeah. ambitious but i think that we did it i think that we got it and uh you know i'm happy with it something to be proud of so thank you all very much
thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I very much had a great time yeah. with all this discussion. Yeah. Morgan, you know, you're like our horror aficionado, Jake as well. Just anytime we're talking about blood, guts, and people being ripped in half, you know that you're on our call list. Just flash the signal. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> One of these days, you'll be talking about something that Morgan and I wrote where they'll Thank have God. people getting ripped Thank in half. God, God bless. So maybe at some point you'll have me on the show to talk about something I don't fucking love. <laughs> But uh, that is not that is not this day. We love enthusiasm here. We really do. Thank yeah. you guys all for listening for this Megapod Voltron episode. And if you enjoyed it, please do go and check out the James and T channel where Morgan and Jake make hay every week talking about albums, new releases, movies from time to time. And check out our upcoming episodes. Our next ones are going to be on the Czechoslovak New Wave, starting with Vera Hichilova's daisies and we got some more fun stuff coming up for you in the future so yeah. thanks for listening and have a great rest of your day bye, bye everybody gonna go lie down and be with the maggots <laughs> <laughs> i feel that